Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Psalm 33. Some of the parents were worried that their kids might come back from that flag waving with an eye missing, but luckily we avoided disaster this morning. Some of you wonder how I am so disciplined, and then you hear my mom lead that group from the piano, and you realize Cassie and I, as kids, grew up both with mom and dad, making sure we knew what to do and when to do it, so... And Gideon, well done on the singing, man. That was wonderful. The young people all sang well, but boy, that solo was just wonderful this morning. Well, I hope you are looking forward to a good patriotic couple few days. Jessica and I noticed once again, even though living out in the county, just how much people love America. They have shot off more fireworks already. We are taking care of our neighbor's chickens while they're out for the holiday weekend, and Jessica is miserably doing so. I mean, we're doing it mindfully and carefully and graciously as neighbors, but 6.15 comes early, and last night when those firecrackers were still going off around 11, I think one of us, probably me or she, leaned over and groaned, oh, I love America too. I mean, at some point, I'm not sure what all the fireworks are about, but uh, certainly on Tuesday, we'll be shooting them off in great glory. Psalm 33 and verse 12 is where we will read this morning. This is in a series that we've been doing this year amongst the larger series throughout the year. We've been teaching on what is. We looked on, on uh, in April, what is a pastor, when Brother Zach became an ordained pastor here on the church staff. On Mother's Day, we looked at what is a woman. On Memorial Day, we looked at what is a soldier. On Father's Day, we looked at what is a man. Last Sunday, we looked at what is a child. We seemingly live in a world and in a country where children are running everything, and that's not God's design. And so this morning, we're going to come and look at what is a nation. There's one more message, and that is on our church anniversary Sunday, the 13th of August, and we will look at what is a church so that we understand who we are and what we do and why we practice the way that we do. But this morning, we pick up our reading here in Psalm 33. And we find the Bible says this, beginning in verse number 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. That word men there literally means Adam. It is the word Adam in the original language. He beholds all of the lineage of Adam, all of us. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. And horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy." to deliver their soul from death, and to keep them alive in famine. Father, we come to you this morning with the Word of God. It is the only source of hope for us as citizens and we as a nation. It is the book, the Bible, your Word, that must be the guiding light in our daily lives. There was a time in our nation where we universally held this to be true. Today it is not so. Bless us, I pray now, as we come to this passage and look at others, as we look at what a nation is and really in doing so what we as a nation are and ought to be. Bless us, I pray this morning in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Today is a day in which our forefathers actually declared independence. July 2nd, 1776. This is a day that they took the vote in which they ultimately, on July 4th, signed the Declaration of Independence into existing or statement of rebellion, if you will, revolution. On June 7th of 1776, Richard Henry Lee introduced a resolution that read that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. From that, the Continental Congress appointed a committee of five to write an announcement explaining the reasons for our independence. On June 11, 1776, Thomas Jefferson holed himself up in his Philadelphia boarding house and began to write. Jefferson later explained that he was not striving for originality of principle or sentiment. Instead, he said, he hoped that his words would serve as an expression of the American mind. Less than three weeks after he'd begun, Jefferson presented his draft to the combined Congress. On July 2nd, 1776, Congress voted to declare independence, and two days later, on July 4th, it ratified the text and signed and sent that declaration to the king. It was that declaration of independence, as I put at the head of your notes, that made America the first nation on earth not founded upon ethnicity, but rather founded upon a shared ethos. Every other nation that has ever existed has been founded upon what tribe, what family, what ethnicity you came from. But America was not. It was not on a shared ethnic background. It was shared ethos, what we believe, who we are, what we hold dear. Thus, on that day, a nation was born. Not of birth, but rather through the bonding of commitment to a shared belief in what we all valued as true. So this morning, if we're going to understand what a nation is, we must begin by using our nation's defining trinity in our outlines. America's defining trinity can be found on our coins. Look, look at the coins, if you will. I didn't put the dollar because it has the Federal Reserve, and you don't want me preaching on that this morning. We'll all get in trouble. But the point is, here on the coins, at least, we can see, if you will, the defining trinity, the three legs that hold up who we are as a nation. Those words are liberty, a phrase, in God we trust, and if I can go back to my coin very quickly, I will get to liberty in a second. E pluribus unum. That's the hardest to see. It's just above the eagle's head on the back of your quarter. Our money shows us these three defining truths as to who we are, this shared ethos of us. It begins, letter A, with liberty, as we've seen. Notice I say in our outlines, liberty, not equality. Do you know what the French Revolution was fought for? One of its three key tenets was liberty, equality. But you know, friend, liberty and equality cannot exist together. Now, some of you seem maybe aghast at that thought. Well, pastor, it even says that all men are created equal. Yes, we are created equal. But in the French Revolution, as opposed to the American Revolution, they tried to reform their nation upon the idea that you can have liberty and that everyone can end up equal. That just can't be. 
If we're going to exercise liberty while we are all equal, certainly as Christians at the foot of the cross, but as Americans in our birth, there is no bound to the possibility of what we can become, but our nation is not bent on making sure we all become the same thing. That's what equality says. We believe in liberty. That's what's emblazoned upon our coinage. That's what we hold as one of the three defining truths of the Trinity of what our ethos is. You can and should be equal before the law, for sure. And we all should have equal opportunities to succeed. But liberty itself cannot ensure the equality of resources nor the outcomes of your life. Those are dependent upon you, your effort, your sweat, your desire, your drive. You have the liberty to be who you want to be in this country. Our nation was not built upon equality. It was always built upon liberty. The second defining element of our trinity is morality, letter B. America was founded upon morality, dictated by the God of the Bible. Of our founding fathers, nearly 80% were of Christian or Catholic origin in their faith. Trust in God drove the founders to claim that all people are endowed with certain inalienable rights. Liberty and governance cannot sustain an immoral people. The motto in God we trust ensures that we understand who drives our moral code. In God we trust removes morality from subjective whims and places moral and ethical standards into the hands of the creator God to whom these men had pledged their very lives as opposed to to just one another. The great commentator on the word of God, Albert Barnes, says of our very passage here in Psalm 33... And in verse 12, when it says, whose God is the Lord, of that phrase, in his commentary on the Old and New Testament, here's what he says of that. And I think it's very important because certainly our founders believed in this principle. Barnes writes this. He says of this phrase, whose God is the Lord, this is evidently said in this passage of Scripture to distinguish such a nation from those which worship false gods or idols. Such a nation that has God as their Lord is blessed or happy because A, he is a real God, a true God, and not an imagination or fiction. B, because his laws, God's laws, are just and good, and their observance will always tend to promote the public welfare and prosperity of those people who choose him as their God. C, because his protection will be assured. The word he uses is vouchsafed. Barnes uses, it's an old word, to such a nation. And letter D, or fourth, because his worship or the worship of that true God and the influence of his religion upon a land will tend to spread virtue, intelligence, purity, and truth over the whole land and thus will result in the promotion of that nation's welfare. That's who we are as a country. When our trust is in God. May I ask this question then? Do you think America still trusts God? Now, in this room, I would say we would get near 100% agreement. Yes, I trust in God. Well, hallelujah for you. We are the hope for the generations to come. Those little ones that were singing for us this morning, they are the hope for the generations ahead, the future of this nation. But may I say to you, well over 50% of Americans no longer attend a church service of any kind week after week. 
In a latest survey, only 35% of Americans still believe that there is a higher power, a God in heaven, with whom they have to do. Friend, we're in trouble if that becomes the permeating thought of this land. We are no different than a secular country. We're no longer a nation under God. John Adams, our, one of our founding fathers, observed the eternal obvious truth that he feared and that we, I believe, are presently living in. When he stated this, he said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. In other words, the American Trinity is first liberty. You have freedom. Then it is morality. We trust in Almighty God. And when we stop trusting in and living in accordance to God and His laws, we become a nation that is falling apart. The third is unity. E pluribus unum. Latin for out of many, one. The American colonies first adopted this motto to show that none of the colonies was greater than the other and that each was dependent upon the other for their mutual success. What beauty there is in that statement. What tragedy there is in our land today. Seeing the designed destruction of that thought that we are a nation unified, not by our skin color, not by our political party affiliation, not by our ideals, not by our progressivism or our conservatism, but because we are Americans. We believe in liberty. We believe in morality. Thus, we have unity for what drives us forward in this world. Unity cannot exist if there's no understanding of personal restraint, however, in the action or use of my own liberty. You see, the first two work together to bring about the third in this trinity. When I exercise my liberty using restraint, the Bible says using liberty not as an occasion to the flesh. When I personally exercise restraint in how I use my liberty with the morality of God checking my own flesh, then I can be unified. I care about you and you care about me. That's how our country was founded. Today we are a fractured nation because everyone expresses their liberty at the expense of others. You're going to do that? Well, here's what I'm going to do, buddy. The Bible tells us, Christ tells us, that believers are to turn the other cheek. Well, they can't say that to me. Oh, no, they can't. You're right. But they just did. How are you as a believer going to respond to that truth? The fracturing of our nation is because we all exercise our liberty for our own reasons and for our own glory. This constantly loosens God's restraining morals and ethical codes upon us. And we find even Christians, Christians, fall into this category as well. So it is that in this once unified nation, we find ourselves in perhaps Israel's time of the judges. In Judges 21 and verse 25, the Bible says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Don't you hear that a lot today? He's not my president. Well, I didn't vote for him. Not my problem. If you're an American, you should be unified. You don't have to agree with the politics that are coming out of Washington right now. I certainly don't in many aspects. But when we stop calling people our president, the one thing that galls me the most, and I'm very careful to say this because I know it affects some of you. 
When people will say, I'm not wearing my flag until then, or I'm going to turn it upside down. Oh, heaven help us. We are not unified. We are fracturing at that point. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Listen, when we don't recognize somebody as an authority over us, we just do what we want. And that is not a spirit of unity that this country was built upon. By the way, it could be worse than that. You say, how could it get worse than that? In the book of Genesis, we might find ourselves today standing on the ramp of the ark, looking out at the world that no one knew. Here's what God said of them. It was worse than Israel's day. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and it repented the Lord. God was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. I realize that many, especially many of you, have served faithfully in our military and have served our country in capacities that maybe many of us don't even know. When you look out upon the land that you have served and friends and brothers and sisters have given their life for, it is hard to see what has become of it. But it's no different than Noah standing on that ramp of the ark looking out of that mass of humanity that was about to be judged. This is the American Trinity, and it defines who we are. Liberty, morality, and unity. But there are a couple tests that we can tell as well. In fact, they're discernible tests that tell any nation if they're a nation. And the Bible teaches this as well. There's real truth in it. There's three discernible tests that must be so for a nation to actually be a nation. Letter A, I put in there, that nation must have sovereign land. You say, oh man, you have so many ways you could go on this. I know, right? Sometimes it's great preaching. <laughs> Which way do I want to go? <laughs> I'll be careful. I'll stick to the Word of God. But friends, it goes without saying that a nation must have land. Do you know the only nation that doesn't have a land? It's the Christian nation. God, through the Apostle Paul, tells us as believers that we are a peculiar people, a holy nation. In other words, we as believers in Jesus Christ are part of a kingdom that is not seen. That does not mean that we usurp our earthly authority. No, we are told to be subject to the higher powers, the authorities that are over us. But that is the only nation I can think of that doesn't have land. Have you ever met somebody that says, I am from Hoopy Hoopy, I don't have a land that is called my own, but I'm from that nation. No, you've never met someone like that. A nation must have sovereign land. Oh, that brings a lot of conversation pieces into our land this morning, doesn't it? A country must have borders. It must have boundaries. Israel had established boundaries that God ordained for them. In fact, God promised Abraham that everywhere the sole of his feet touched in his journey to Cana would be his and his seed after him. Israel had borders. Today, Israel has borders. They're not the ones that God originally established. But every nation under God, every nation in this world, has borders. Our nation has a footprint as well. We've grown to become a nation of 50 states from the original 13 colonies. This is our sovereign land. As a nation, we are allowed to defend those borders, and we are allowed to define who may cross them. It is not unbiblical to note that those who are natural-born citizens of this land may come and go freely, and that the stranger must adhere to and abide by our sovereignty. The idea that America was founded by immigrants is a bit far-fetched. We were founded by pilgrims, people who had been here for hundreds of years and established lives here. 
Those pilgrims and strangers determined to coalesce under a creed, a construct, a constitution. But it took 260 years for the 13 colonies to develop into a viable nation with an agreed-upon purpose and value system or ethos. That is the Declaration of Independence. It's what we read this morning. Biblically, interestingly enough, the strangers, while always welcomed in Israel's land, were expected to adapt to the laws and the governance of that land if they intended to stay. Here is a way that you can understand what God would say today about the process that we seemingly are arguing about in our country today. Here's what God would say in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 48. And when the strangers shall shall sojourn with thee, All right. So that person that is not a native born citizen of Israel, when he shall sojourn with thee and will keep the Passover to the Lord. Okay, so he's agreed to keep the ceremonial law. He's agreed to keep the spiritual law. Let all his males be circumcised. In other words, follow the ordinances of the land. If you can do that, you can come. And then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be, what does God say? As one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. Now, this was within the context of the Passover, Exodus chapter 12. It is when the context of can that stranger, that mixed multitude of Egyptians going out with them, could they eat with them? And God said, yes, that stranger can be a citizen, but that stranger must abide by the laws of that land. He goes even further in Leviticus 19 and he tells us who are native born in our land how we treat the one who comes here. The Bible has everything that pertains to life and godliness. It only takes you and I as believers to go and look for them. Here's what he says in Leviticus 19 and verse 33. And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, ye shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So how am I to treat one that comes to my nation? If I have a sovereign land and one wants to come and be a part of what we have and agree with the ethos, the the only requirement I have is follow our laws. And if you do, you will be a friend to me. I will not vex you. I will embrace you. You know, America is the only land that you can move in, and the second generation of that family can be the president of the United States. It's the only country in the world that allows that. That is glorious, my friend. That is wonderful. It's because we aren't an ethnic group. We're an ethos collection. We believe the same thing. One final thing. Just in case you ever wonder where our founders got the idea of who could run for president, who could hold offices, where our laws come from. By the way, a vast number of our of our laws are from the book of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Ruth. In the Old Testament, all of the principles are there found in our governance. If you go around Washington, D.C., and I grew up around that city, you can look on the top of all of those marble edifices and you will find Bible verse after Bible quote after Bible reference everywhere you look because our founders understood the importance of this. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 15. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee. He's saying, here's who you will pick as a king, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. God's going to select your leader, Israel. For us, we get to select 
who we have as our leader. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Why would God make that rule for Israel? And the answer is because a stranger might lead them astray, but one who has become a part of their nation would understand what they're all about. So it is that our founders said, you got to wait one generation. You immigrate, hallelujah, come. All are welcome following the right guidelines and principles of entry into citizenship in this country. And in one generation, you can run the place. If you follow the rules, if you live by the laws of this land and you love the ethos that is America, you too can change your world. Israel was to nationalize then a sojourner, stranger, who had through action and sacrifice declared his or her hope of living among them. That stranger, according to these passages, must adhere to and abide by Israel's law, whether they spiritual, moral, or civil. Consequently, the Israelites were to treat that immigrant with kindness and respect. Finally, the immigrant for Israel could not rule in the first generation. My friend, that is fair immigration policy, and I'm not even running for office. It sounds like what our American immigration policy used to be. The point is there's no such thing as a global society. God has always recognized the nations. There are presently 190 plus countries that are formed on a shared ethnic heritage or a shared ethical ideal, which have sovereign boundaries that are only changed through warfare or statecraft. That's the only way that boundaries and sovereign land may be changed. A nation must have land, but then let her be, it must have enforced laws. Any person in the world can look at these and go, duh. I'm not telling you anything that's not obvious. But I think sometimes we should state the obvious so that we can frame our thinking on topics, conversations. It's all biblical. Some of you have asked where the constitutions came from that are out in the lobby. Scott and Tracy Hill brought them. Tracy's daughter works with Turning Point USA and graciously provided them. So you can take one home. The little ones are for you that have great eyesight. The bigger ones are for people like me that need their reading glasses. And so you can take them home with you. It's got a lot of good little insights in it. It's amazing to me, though, that you can fit the founding documents of this great nation in your pocket or in your purse. Yet a COVID package or a debt deal or a spending spree in a totally unnecessary war will be thousands of pages long with millions of words in it. Do you know why they do that? It's so that the average citizen is so confused and confounded they will never get involved. It doesn't really matter what the laws are of a land, however few or many they may be. For a nation to last, it must have laws and it must enforce those laws Equally, that's what you should demand of your government. Romans 13, verse 3 says this, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? In other words, do you not want to be afraid of them? What does he conclude? Do that which is good. And thou shalt have praise of the same. For he, that is the authority over you, is the minister of God to thee for good. Now, some of us, let's pause for a second on this verse. Some of us kind of chuckle or sneer a little bit at that. (laughs) Yeah. 
But may I submit to you, that's exactly what the devil wants you to think about government. God, as we'll see in our final point this morning, in establishing government, did so to protect you. And yes, there are corrupt people, but we live in a constitutional republic. By the way, don't ever get me started on whether we live in a democracy. We don't. And I don't need any Democratic vote on that. We live in a constitutional republic. And our constitutional republic was so founded so that we could be free from corruption. But oh, lo, these 247 years, we have found the way to bring corruption even into a noble endeavor, which is the American idea. He goes on and he says, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. The book of Jeremiah, I don't have this verse in the overheads this morning, but the book of Jeremiah, the prophet there warns what happens when those who would do evil and want good for it, what the nation is like. In other words, if you participate in evil and you get a good outcome and you participate in good and you receive evil for that, that nation is in serious decline and God's judgment is coming. And so we better wake up in America about the enforcement of our laws. When the government stops enforcing laws, anarchy begins. When they begin to enforce laws using differing standards for different people or groups of people, you, are very quickly be- you will very quickly begin to lose the status of being a nation at all. Uh, it's an overused phrase, but everybody seems to use it left and right today. It's a banana republic. I don't know if it's a banana republic, but it's not a good republic. Let me ask you this question. Can you imagine walking into Kroger, ripping the Oreos off the shelf and waltzing out? Mike can. <laughs> I might in the heart of my own mind think I could. And the answer is no. Because Alec and all the other GB, Georgetown Police Department would be upon us in an instant saying, dude, you're stealing. You can't do that. I don't care if you're my pastor. If you're stealing, you're called a thief. And yet in wide sections of our nation, businesses by the thousands, are leaving inner cities because people have refused to enforce laws. It's just basic truths. And somehow we've lost, well, Pastor, you don't understand their situation. No, I understand the situation. They've been told long enough with other, whomever they are in eastern Kentucky or in the inner city of Chicago, they've been told long enough that, that crime is not going to be punished. Thus, when the p- crime is not punished, the evildoers just wax worse and worse. A nation must have sovereign land. It must have enforceable laws. And finally, it must have honest leaders. Now, this is where we can all laugh. (laughs) An honest leader is a statesman. A statesman is different than a politician. A politician is someone who is professionally involved in politics. There are far too many professional politicians in our country. I hesitate to say this on this July 2nd, but the only mistake that I think our founding fathers made was not establishing term limits for every nationally elected office. Uh, I long ago signed on to Jim DeMint's, um, now I just skipped my mind, I didn't write it in my notes, but the uh, Constitution of the States or whatever they call it, 
where they can ratify the Constitution, and it's their only mission is to establish term limits on every nationally elected office. It's a great idea. And I thought for a long time in my own personal political development, in my own mind, why the founders missed that. And, and the answer is, to Washington, to Franklin, to Madison, or to Adams in their day, it was both unfathomable and untenable for someone to be a career politician. The amazing thing to me is the first eight Congresses only met in the month of December. And they all went back home to be farmers or, or blacksmiths or printing press runners. Whatever else they did, they went back home to do that. It wasn't until several election cycles that somebody went, hmm, I might make this my job. You see, we went from being statesmen to politicians. It wasn't long after our founding fathers that the swamp began, as we like to call it today. Can I say this? The only way to break, drain, or abolish the swamp is to make sure that every person there is a statesman and not there for their own private and personal gain. A statesman does what is necessary for the betterment of his country, then leaves the next work to another man or woman of integrity. The perfect picture of this is General Washington resigning as the commander-in-chief at the end of the Revolutionary War. If it is reported that King George was dumbfounded that General George Washington would step down from the powerful position of leading this newly formed nation. He was astounded that the character of Washington would allow him as a statesman to say, no, I don't want that. I want what's better for everybody, not just for my own pocket. Oh my goodness, if we could have statesmen like that once again. We need honest leaders. A land is a land so long as it has honest leaders. Proverbs chapter 28 speaks much to this. It's a wonderful passage for anybody that ever wants to seek higher office or seek a position of authority. Uh, I often will give chapters 20 through 29 to people who are seeking positions of authority or leadership because it has great truths. Here's a couple of them that we're going to go through this morning. In verse 2, the Bible says, For the transgression of a land, many are the princes thereof. <laughs> There's a lot of leaders in a country that's messed up. We have a country filled with figureheads, a lot of chiefs, not a lot of Indians. It's probably not culturally correct anymore, but there you go. It finishes by saying, but by a man of understanding and knowledge, the state thereof shall be what? Prolonged. Boy, the next verse is even more telling. It says, a poor man. That word poor there, the first use of the word poor is the word craving or desirous or lustful. A poor man, and the word man here is used, is one of strength. A craving strong man, we could read, that oppresseth the weak or the poor, that's the second use of the word poor, is like a sweeping rain which leaveth no food. That's our country today. We've got a lot of stark raving cra- crazy, uh, stark raving crazy, there's the word I want, uh, strong men who are oppressing those who cannot help themselves. And the rain sweeps and the flood comes and it washes all of the seed away. He goes on and says, they that forsake the law praise the wicked. We have politicians that are praising the wicked behavior in many of these cities today. But such as keep the law, contend with them. Thank goodness for the police officers of this nation. Both in our county and in our city, I'm grateful. 
couple weeks back, Jessica and I had a surprise opportunity to have lunch together. And we went out to lunch, and as we were sitting there at lunch, three of our county officers walked into the restaurant. And I told her, I'm going to go buy their lunch. And she said, check the bank account. No, she didn't say that. She said, I agree 100%. And when I went up and bought their lunch, all three of them said, well, you don't have to do that. I said, no, I know I don't have to do that, but you don't have to do what you're doing. They're willing to stake their very lives to keep you safe. But such as keep the law contend with those evildoers. Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. What a great passage. When a nation descends into apostasy and moral decadence, which America has, it becomes a prey to those who are pretenders and partisans who will do nothing but gin up turmoil after turmoil after turmoil because they just want this nation to be wicked. Would to God our nation would awaken to righteousness. My friend, that only happens when we choose good men and good women to lead. So we come to a closing thought, our final point, our defining trinity comes with some discernible tests as to what a nation is. Brings us third and finally to God's divine truths on what a nation is. The psalmist gave us us a thought to ponder. Are we a nation that God can bless? Certainly in our founding and through our formative years in the middle 1800s, into our fervent strength of the late 1800s through the middle to late 1900s, America was blessed by God. Liberty, morality, and unity were entrenched in our land, in our laws, and in our leaders. We are rapidly approaching, however, a crossroad. So we do well to remind ourselves of what government is supposed to do according to God. No, not the countless millions of lines of governmental regulations. Those don't guide us. Those just hinder us, by the way. But the three simple truths that God gives us in establishing human government. He does so when Noah walks off the ark. In Genesis 9 and verse 1, the Bible says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Down in verse number 6, after he gives them permission in verses 2 through 5 to eat the flesh of animals, going from being a vegetarian to being a carnivore, he says this in verse 6, He establishes human government. He says, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. These are God's divine truths for governing our nation or any nation. Listen to the understanding that our founding fathers had. In the second paragraph of the Declaration, they say this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable or inseparable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of those or the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute, not anarchy. What did they say? 
new government. In other words, they understood God's governing role or the role of government in their life, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and their happiness. Three thoughts and we're done. God's divine truth first is that government would protect life. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. God protects life at every age, from the womb until we naturally enter the grave. God is for life because God is life, according to 1 John. He is the giver of life. He is the source of life. Thus, he is the determiner of one's life span. A nation's government, in whatever form, of all other things, is first and foremost to protect human life. Thank God for the decisions that the Supreme Court recently has made when it comes to the areas of what is true of a baby unborn in the womb of a woman. Secondly, it's to promote liberty. In chapter 9 of Genesis, at the beginning of verse 7, he says, You be ye fruitful. Does he tell us how to? Does he tell us why we should? Well, later he says to replenish the earth, but no. Here's the point. God says, I'm just telling you what I want you to do. This earth is big and there's only eight of you. I want you to go out and be fruitful. Do whatever you choose to do. You have the liberty to exercise your life in whatever way you see fit. Isn't that wonderful? You don't need to come to pastor and say, pastor, what should I do next? We're not that kind of church. I'm going to look at you and say, you've got liberty. Exercise yourself unto godliness, as the Bible says. That's all I'm going to encourage you to do. Our government should be no different. The implication in this phrase is that God is to be, from God, is that we are to be collectively productive. Therefore, any government that allows for someone to freeload and shift work to others is not of God. For it is not promoting liberty of autonomous provision. Liberty is not to do as I please, but rather we have the liberty to be fruitful in any way that we choose. God established that government should ensure that our citizens may be free to choose whatever path of life they want so long as they are fruitfully multiplying. That is what you have the liberty to do. Be productive. This obviously encompasses the growth of families. For that is the paramount way for nations that nations came to be. You can read in Genesis chapter 10, the very next chapter, it is called the Table of Nations. And it shows you where all of the peoples of the world came from. Even the godless atheists who are or studiers of anthropology come back to Genesis 10 and say, it's an excellent record of where mankind spread out across the earth. Even if they don't believe in the flood and even if they don't believe in creation. They still use that table of nations. Why? Because they used their liberty to go and do and be what they were going to be. God's divine truth is that a nation's government should promote the general welfare of people to be at peace with the freedom to be a valuable addition to society, not a deadbeat or a drain upon it. And we have developed such people in our land. But finally this morning, we are to pursue a living you say, ah, it's the pursuit of happiness. Can I tell you something? When you're truly living what you love, you are your happiest. When you're doing that which you know you've been made for, 
you are, you are most fulfilled and most satisfied. The latter half of verse 7, he says, Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply. The pursuit of happiness that Jefferson wrote can be found also in James Madison's Virginia Declaration of Rights. There, Madison wrote, wrote it this way, The enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Both of these men were adherents to John Locke and his political philosophies on property and personal rights. The idea is that what you can do, what you are proficient at, what you can produce, you can pursue it to as much degree as you choose. That's what a nation should do for you. Rather than inhibit you and limit you and thwart your efforts, it should encourage you to pursue your happiness so long as you're a productive member of society. Your pursuit of happiness cannot interfere with my ability to pursue my happiness or my living to bring forth abundantly. Thus, life and liberty are enshrined in God's divine truth for government. But living is what God wants us to do. Living to the fullest within the framework of who He made us to be. May I submit to you, there's also a spiritual application. You who have received eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God wants you to pursue the happiness or the fullest satisfaction you can in that life. And that's through obedience to Him. That's what God wants from you. This is the American dream because our founders knew God's truth. The phrase bring forth abundantly in Genesis 9 and verse 7 means to expand exponentially. While the phrase multiply therein speaks to this expressly, acquiring and possessing. Thus, God is saying a government is to establish an environment where you and I can pursue through hard work and discipline a living that is beneficial to us and to those around us within our nation. Man, that just annihilates our modern free lunch, free ride culture, doesn't it? Well, I want to pursue my happiness, man. I'm going to live in a van out on the Pacific Ocean and I'm going to get me some stuff that makes me feel great. And you're going to pay for it all and you're going to like it. And we're laughing because probably somewhere in our families we know people like that. Freeloader. That's what we used to call them. Now we can't. It's offensive. So in closing this morning, what is a nation? In America, a nation or our nation includes the divine Trinity, or the defining trinity, I should say, of liberty, morality, and unity. May I submit to you this morning that if you are not living your Christian faith, you are not helping in this trinity. It's why De Tocqueville, when he traveled across America in the early 1800s, He wrote, the secret power of America is not in our governance, it's not in our forming documents, It is found, he said, in the small fires of the churches within the communities. In other words, those observers from without could note what was the successful element of this nation, and it was our core morality of knowing what is true and right. And yet in churches like ours, there are people who will live like the devil from Monday to Saturday, show up and salute God on Sunday, and go back to that same life the next Monday. Can I suggest to you, you are the cause for the destruction of this land. Yeah. 
Me alone? You and 10,000 of your closest friends like that. All it takes is one church or one group of churches to actually say, you know, we're actually going to go out and live Christ-like behavior before the whole world. Liberty, morality, and unity. For any nation... One of the tests that you could give, or any of the three tests you could give, is do they have land, do they have laws, and do they have leadership? But for God's divine truth, a nation, a nation that pleases Him, one whose God is the Lord, as the psalmist told us at the beginning, must protect life, must promote liberty, and it must see its citizenry pursuing a living to their greatest satisfaction and fulfillment. I'm glad that God has allowed me to be born in this land of the free. I want to make sure everybody, because usually when pastor preaches, like, man, he's really getting after us today. I'm simply saying it is my job to make sure we are aware of what's going on. But I never take for granted that it is a high blessing and honor. It is a privilege in this age to be born in this land. I understand that. So I don't look down my nose at those that are born in other countries. I understand why they will literally crawl over broken glass and razor wire to come to this land. Because what we have is highly valuable on the face of this earth. I don't know what I can do to affect the godly changes that I'd like to see in our country personally. But I do know that the change must start in my personal life like it does in yours. Then it will carry out into our public life so that we might have it fill over or spill over into a prosperous, prosperous and productive national life. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, friends, that's the start. If you have placed your trust in Christ's finished work on Calvary, then you have a twofold purpose. First, love God, which means be obedient to His Word. And second, love others as yourself, which means you must show grace, mercy, kindness, and most importantly, the gospel to someone this very week. Father, help us.